It's all led to this moment. You stand on top of an abandoned building, bloody, beaten, broken. But you can't stop yet. Another man stands in front of you poised to attack. Normally, anyone who challenges you receives a swift and humiliating defeat. But not this man. He's proven himself to be your equal, the only opponent you can't toss aside. You've come into conflict before, but neither of you has secured a clear victory. Something always interrupted you. But now, there are no more interruptions. No more distractions. It's just you and him. It's time to declare a winner. You're not worried. Your victory is assured. But so is his. You're actors on the set of an action movie, and both of your livelihoods depend on how audiences perceive your physical prowess. Sure, it's fake, and your stunt double takes most of the hits. But can your reputation... I'm your host, Harper Hunt, and this is Cursed Knowledge. Furious franchise, officially the Fast Saga, but no one calls it that, is famous for death-defying stunts, complete disregard for physics and road safety, and big action men with the fakest-sounding names, Vin Diesel, The Rock, and Jason Statham beating each other up. The franchise began in 2001 with The Fast and The Furious. For the uninitiated, think Point Break, but with cars. Instead of Keanu Reeves, you had Paul Walker. And instead of Patrick Swayze, you had Vin Diesel. Walker plays a rookie FBI agent sent undercover to infiltrate the world of illegal street racing and see if Vin Diesel's crew is behind a series of robberies in the area. Through some impressive yet grounded practical effects, Walker and Diesel gain each other's respect and part as equals. The movie did fairly well at the box office and earned itself some sequels. The second and third films, Too Fast, Too Furious, and Tokyo Drift, respectively, are pretty typical as far as sequels go. Too Fast, Too Furious, and yes, the two is the number two, follows Walker as the main character all the way down to Miami. Vin Diesel isn't here, but Tyrese Gibson shows up as Walker's childhood friend. Then Tokyo Drift ditches the states and the existing cast entirely, following a cast of newcomers who we will never see again. Oh, and this was the third movie filmed, but is actually the sixth movie chronologically. The fourth film, Fast and Furious, is a return to form as we are reunited with the original cast. But the story takes it up a notch as Vin Diesel's crew is recruited by Walker to take down a drug cartel. It's a good movie. If I seem to be skipping past these movies oddly quickly, I am. The first four movies are good, but they're fairly forgettable and are all trying to be something else. They're all replicating styles and plots from other movies, and they feel pretty trite. From the fifth movie onwards, Fast and Furious found its footing and quickly became a phenomenon. As the original actors became stars and others joined the franchise, the challenge of creating a story that entertained audiences and kept all the actors happy became harder. The fifth film, beautifully titled Fast Five, is where fans will tell you everything changed. 
By this time, superhero movies and big action franchises like Mission Impossible were gaining in popularity, and Universal wanted a piece of the action. Gone are the days of realistic street racing. From here on out, these are blockbuster action movies, and the actors are invincible heroes. To assist in this genre shift, the movie adds The Rock and a pre-Wonder Woman Gal Gadot to the cast. And that's where some of the more iconic Fast and Furious iconography emerges. The Rock is introduced as a law enforcement antagonist to our heroes, who have gone from small-time street racers in the U.S. to Robin Hood heroes hiding out in Rio de Janeiro. Through a series of increasingly ludicrous plans... Oh, did I mention that rapper Ludacris joined the cast back in the second film? No? Well, now you know. They rip a bank vault out of the bank and use it as a weapon in a car chase in downtown Rio. As the franchise drifts along and adds more characters to its already packed roster, one problem began to pick up steam. Vin Diesel and The Rock engage in hand-to-hand combat several times in this film, and the stunt coordinators go to great lengths to make us believe that this is somehow a fair matchup. Before The Rock showed up, Vin Diesel was far and away the most muscular man in the films, and the clear alpha male. Now, he's fighting someone a foot taller and about 100 pounds heavier, and it showed on screen. Looking at the two men, Vin Diesel should not have won that fight. There have been fights between people of different sizes before on screen, of course, but the difference in size is usually accompanied by a difference in fighting style, speed and skill versus strength and stamina. But both of these men are action heroes who mainly rely on showing their strength. So they did the exact same thing. Literally. They copied each other. When The Rock throws Vin Diesel through a wall, eight seconds later, Vin Diesel will throw The Rock through a wall. It's a near-perfect give-and-take in their fights that makes them feel less like a desperate battle for survival and more like a show of one-upmanship. Think of colorful birds dancing around for attention. This continues throughout the entire movie until a third party emerges, they team up, and part as unlikely friends. This movie changed the Fast and Furious franchise. It made $626 million at the box office and proved that impossible action is the bigger draw. Each film from here on out raises the stakes, the drama, and the physics-bending action. More action stars will join the cast permanently or as guest stars. But here's the thing. All of these men have made their careers through action movies. More specifically, by being the hero of the action movie. Action movie heroes are known for their stoic resolve, their rippling muscles, and the certainty that they will win in the end. It's important for the careers of these men that they maintain that action movie hero persona at all times. And as the franchise sped forward, characters who were supposed to come in conflict with one another were all being played by actors who could not be seen losing a fight. You see where this is going? The stories, action, and plot arc of the Fast and Furious film franchise are themselves a reflection of the contracts with the male action stars of the movies. More specifically, contracts which state that the actor cannot lose a fight against another star on screen. And it's not just contracts either. Off screen, each of the actors have an entire team of people manufacturing this illusion. Statham has a limit on how beaten up he can look after any fight. Vin Diesel has his younger sister, who is a producer on the Fast and Furious films, police the number of punches he takes. 
When The Rock's character was supposed to be lying on the ground, he insisted that he be sitting up so he not look defeated. All of them work extensively with the fight choreographers to ensure that the fight is fair and they all get to look cool. That is, well, unless you don't have one of those contracts. The sixth movie, Fast and Furious 6, a less cool title, follows the formula of the fifth movie. This time, the antagonist is played by Luke Evans. Poor Luke doesn't have a can't-lose clause, so he gets beaten up and thrown out of a plane at the end. The Rock, on the other hand, joins the main crew and gets a team-up moment with Vin Diesel. It's fun, exciting, and tries really hard to make it seem like Michelle Rodriguez and Vin Diesel have any chemistry. The real legacy of the sixth movie, however, is the after-credit scene that sets up Jason Statham as the antagonist for the seventh movie. And here's where things get interesting. Because Statham was teased at the end of the sixth movie, the writers had a unique problem. They weren't writing an antagonist role that could be filled by any actor. They were writing this role for Jason Statham. And the fans were ecstatic. They couldn't wait to see some of their favorite action stars go toe-to-toe in a franchise that would really let them see what their childhood action figure fights looked like in real life. With all of these requirements and expectations, the stunt coordinators, director, cinematographer, and most of all, the script writers had to carefully concoct a story that would allow for quippy dialogue, insane car stunts, and for none of these men to lose a fight. Oh, and did I mention that this movie only has one credited screenwriter? Thankfully, they succeeded. There's quippy one-liners from everyone all the time. They parachute cars out of a plane and jump between skyscrapers. Most importantly, none of our action heroes lose a fight to another one of the stars. That's right, not one. The opening scene has Statham post-battle as he walks through the casual carnage he delivered off-screen. Early on, The Rock fights Statham and the two are evenly matched. The Rock puts Statham through a table. Next move, Statham drops a light fixture on The Rock. Same dance, different dancers. That is, until Statham throws a grenade and The Rock abandons the fight to protect his co-worker and gets thrown out a window. And down 10 stories. And lands on a car. But Statham didn't beat The Rock. A grenade did. And don't worry, he still only breaks an arm and later flexes so hard the cast flies off so he can drive an ambulance into a drone that's menacing our supporting cast. Vin Diesel gets to fight Statham in the dramatic climax, but he doesn't technically beat Statham. Instead, they fight with hands and metal pipes on top of a parking garage as the structure collapses around them. Then Vin Diesel says, The thing about street fighting... The street always wins. He stomps on the crumbling ground so hard, the parking garage collapses around Statham, dropping him several stories under concrete rubble and barely knocking him out. So Vin Diesel didn't beat Statham. The street beat Statham. This made one and a half billion dollars. The eighth movie introduces a secret international organization helmed by Kurt Russell, I mean Mr. Nobody. Now Vin Diesel is forced to work for Charlie's Theron, the antagonist for this outing. By now, you might have noticed that I haven't named a single character and have instead exclusively used the actor's real names. That's because the most character somebody has in a Fast and Furious movie is that they are played by that actor. 
The Rock is technically known as Luke Hobbs, but his characteristics are being big, strong, charismatic, and being played by The Rock. When I tell you who the actor is, that should tell you everything about the character, because the character is built around the actor. Helen Mirren is a no-nonsense British woman who favors the silk-hiding-steel approach and is somehow also Statham's mother. Ronda Rousey appears in the seventh movie just to be a woman who could fight Michelle Rodriguez for a scene and then disappear, never to be mentioned again. The plot of the eighth movie has The Rock and Statham antagonize one another, but be stopped before they can actually fight and then team up to help Vin Diesel. To redeem Statham from the last movie, this one sees him sneak into a plane while it's flying to single-handedly save Vin Diesel's infant son. Meanwhile, The Rock pushes an above-ground torpedo, just don't ask, off course with his bare hands. And Vin Diesel gets to spend the whole movie running rings around the supporting cast, proving he is, as always, the leading man of this franchise. If you think the last two movies were a constant battle of one-upmanship from the leading men, just wait. Hobbs and Shaw is a spin-off starring The Rock and Statham. The entire concept is that they are badasses who do the same thing slightly differently and dislike one another. The film is the two of them taunting one another and almost fighting the whole time. If one of them lays out a giant of a man in one punch, the other now has to take out a room of 10 men without breaking a sweat. If Statham forces The Rock to use the fake name Mike Oxmall, The Rock has to talk about how he's going to sleep with Statham's sister for three minutes. It gets so bad, Kevin Hart has to show up out of nowhere and tell them to knock it off. It is entirely a movie built on the narratives established in the previous movies. And the narratives established in the previous movies are nothing more than the carefully cultivated narratives of the actors themselves. If this all sounds very juvenile, that's because it is. To me, this brings to mind a middle school ballet class where the kids are complaining to the teacher that they should get to stand in the center because they are the best. But for the actors, it's very serious. Now, this certainly isn't the first time contracts have been used to uphold a certain image. Have you ever seen the 1988 classic Who Framed Roger Rabbit? If you haven't, pause this podcast and go watch it. You're missing out on one of the finest films ever made. If you have, then you know that the great triumph of the film isn't the perfect merger of live-action hand-drawn animation, but in the perfect merger of Disney and Warner Brothers. Some of the most famous characters from the Warner Brothers and Disney stable were present in the movie, but there was one condition both studios demanded before they'd allow their characters to be used. The other studio couldn't have more screen time than they did. So here's what happened. When the movie had Daffy Duck appear, he was accompanied by Donald Duck. They shared the same scene and had the same amount of lines. Then later, when Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny pop in, they're also only seen together and have the same amount of lines. By keeping the characters together at all times and monitoring their dialogue, the studio was able to get the rights to these iconic characters. And the audience never noticed. The integration was so seamless that the audience never suspected every moment of these interactions was dictated by studio egos. But we're not talking about cartoon animals or the chokehold Disney has on the entertainment industry. Yet. 
We're talking about muscle cars and stoic proclamations of family. We're talking a franchise that has been going for two decades and has single-handedly made Coors Light look cool. And it's still going. At the time of this recording, the ninth film, Fast 9, was days away from release. So will newcomer John Cena, like The Rock before him, play himself, only with the physics of Fast and Furious? Will the new group of screenwriters be able to navigate the balance between the narrative of the movie and the narrative the actors impose, as well as longtime writer Chris Morgan did? Time will tell. But for now, you are cursed with the knowledge that the outcomes of many of your favorite movie fight scenes are written not by a showrunner, not by a screenwriter, but by a clerk in a law office on Avenue of the Stars. And remember... The real curse is sharing this information with your friends, family, and unsuspecting co-workers. If you enjoyed this production, like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, share some of your most cursed knowledge by joining our forums at EpsilonTheory.com. starfish have to throw up their stomachs in order to eat.